right. Thank you. Thank you, Sirkin. Uh, welcome. Welcome in today. Hey, uh, today's kind of a, a sad day. Um, I'm smiling, but I'm sad. Uh, today will be the last time. You guys are smiling. It's not supposed to be. It's not a funny, funny moment. Uh, today's the last day we're actually um, being led into worship by our presider, uh, Stephen Hong, Seho Hong. Um, it's his last hurrah. Um, next Sunday will be him and, and his, his wife, Jane, and their children. Um, Grace and Joseph, their, their last week, they're moving to a distant Pacific island in order to spend a couple years um, bringing the gospel to a people that they care about so deeply. Um, you can talk to them more about that, but um, okay, let's do that. Let's thank, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so at the end of uh, today, next Sunday will be their last Sunday. Please do take a moment to uh, just give them a hug, thank them for uh, helping us to see more of Jesus. That would be appropriate and would be a great way to honor um, those who have been uh, serving and loving and blessing us. Cool. Hey, can you um, l- look to someone next to you and say, let's hear from God today. Can you say that? Let's hear from God. All right. <laughs> All right. That was pretty good. Can you look at someone else and say, don't bother me? We're starting something new today, uh, something for which I'm really excited, Uh, starting a new sermon series. Uh, It's not the kind of excitement like, oh, I'm going to Disney World or I'm going to watch the Super Bowl at, at, at our church kind of excitement, not a... Oh my gosh, I, I got tickets to the BTS concert. Not that kind of excitement. Uh, it's the kind of excitement where it's like people have been sick for a long time and we've tried a lot of different remedies and those remedies that people are telling us we need to engage in and, 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 and utilize um, have worked to a certain extent, but there's still a level of unhealth and sickness that remains and we've been kind of trying to figure out how we can get through this, how we can get well, how we can get healthy, how we can get healed, but um, it hasn't worked and now we're being wheeled all together into a surgery room in order that we could finally begin to work at what's beneath the surface in order to bring about long-term health. This is going to be, in short, in a word, it's going to be surgical. And it could get messy, and it could get bloody, and it could get yucky, and it could get, you know, it could get difficult at times. But I think on the flip side of it, there's going to be a large modicum of healing that many of us will experience in freedom. Whom the sun sets free, who is free indeed, um, we're going to experience a lot more of that. And because of that, uh, I'm super excited because I need that. I think we need that. And we're going to journey together because here's the thing. Here's the thing about emotionally healthy spirituality. That's the series that we're going through. And it's a book that was written by a man named Peter Scazzaro. Um, information is in the insert of your bulletin. Uh, about who he is and the book set that I would recommend you, you looking at in order to kind of get the pump primed for this series here. But the thing about an emotionally healthy spirituality is that we often ignore the emotional component of our lives because we think in our minds we know what spiritual maturity is. So you look at somebody who you think is spiritually mature and you look at them and because you see them in a certain way, you're willing to overlook or gloss over the emotional unhealth in their lives and the emotional inconsistencies in their lives because you think to yourself, well, they're spiritually mature and so it must not be that big a deal. But beneath the surface lurks something much deeper. You know that in an iceberg, you only see the 10% of it and 90% is below the surface, but it's the 90%, it's the things unseen that make all the difference in the world. So what does that look like? You have a great spiritual figure who loves the Word of God, constantly quotes the Word of God, social media feed filled with quotes that talk about the greatness of God and these Bible verses, but when you talk to them, they're really mean and they're really angry and they're always looking down on people who do not meet their standards of spirituality. There's the person who's extremely gifted and who can work a crowd like nobody's business. Everybody loves them. They're the one that people want to be leading praise or they're the one that people want to be speaking at at conferences. But deep within, they realize the secret that they thrive off of the praise and adoration and the approval and the applause of people who tell them what a great job they're doing. There's the person who teaches Sunday school. They're a children's ministry uh, 
teacher, a Sunday school teacher for second grade, whatever it is that they are, but they're teaching something. And so you see them as a spiritual hero to many, super sweet, super kind, always loving, but the more you begin to talk to them, the more you begin to realize that they're constantly playing the part of a victim so that they never need to take responsibility for the actions and the brokenness within their own lives. There are people like this all around. You see the missionary who's blazing trails, but along with that trail that they blaze into the jungles, there's a trail of, there's a body count, there's carnage because of their inability to keep lasting relationships. They keep people at bay because of their fears and insecurities because they think if anybody knew the real me, then they wouldn't like me, they wouldn't respect me, they wouldn't follow me. And so they keep people at a distance and you see the fallout in their ministries. It's the person who's so supremely gifted in everything that they do, but it's covering up a bunch of secret addictions that if people found out, it would sink everything about their reputation. It's people like that. It's the godly mother that everybody looks at and says, wow, they're the matriarch of, of, of the house church or the matriarch of, of the church or whatever it is, but deep inside, their family knows the truth, that the reason they have such a sparkling image is because they lie to cover up the truth, and everyone else in the family knows it, and every time they say something, something, they think, well, that's just him being him or her being her, but they shake their heads knowing the truth, but they don't say anything because they've lived with that for their entire lives. It's the person who serves you so faithfully at church, faithful, steady, consistent, never fails to be there on time, but they've got a string, a track record of broken relationships, not only broken, but of shady relationships, faulty relationships, ungodly relationships where you wonder, what are they thinking? Why do they continue to get into these unwise relationships. There are people like that all around, and we are okay with it because we think the emotional consistencies can be glossed over because we know what spiritual maturity looks like. And maybe that's where you are also. People look at you as a spiritual leader or as a spiritually mature person. They think, wow, you know, I want to be in this guy's small group, this guy's house church, this guy's Bible study class. I want to follow her in this thing and her in that thing and be mentored by this person. But deep down inside, you know that on the surface, everything might be good, but below the surface, there's something bubbling up inside that you're worried about, that you're afraid that if this comes out and in trauma and in high-pressure situations, high-octane situations, that stuff is going to come out and you're worried because you know that there's got to be more than this. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed, but you're thinking to yourself, I don't really feel free. For all of my life I've been following Christ, I found some measure of freedom, but I feel stuck in this place. Is that any of you? You're spiritually, you're doing the right things on the outside, everything that people told you to be. In fact, you have a reputation. People think something of you, but deep in your heart, you realize that there's a brokenness. 90% of you is broken, and you're worried, and you're afraid, and you're stuck, and you're wondering why this is. I'm excited for this journey. I know it's not going to be easy, but I'm excited because this is what's going to bring lasting transformation. This is the inside-out kind of stuff, not just I'm going to cover up the outsides and decorate the outsides by doing the right thing. I'm going to go to church, be a small group, be a house church leader, be a house church member, be committed to it, give my tithe, read the Bible, pray, I'm going to do all those things, not just the decorations, but from the inside, not just the 10%, but the 90% surgery in order that we might actually grow to become healthy to realize that there's a better way of doing life, the life that Jesus intended when he said, I came to give you life, and that is in abundance that still awaits you. I know you've been trying. You've been trying 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. You've seen it in your parents. You've seen it in your grandparents. You've seen it in other people. They're trying, but there's still this emotional baggage within them. There is the hope for a better life. And it's found in Christ, and it's found when we understand his teaching. So we're going to look today at Mark 12. What I want to do is over the next nine weeks, it's going to take some time, but for two weeks, we're going to set the operating table by talking about why we need to do this, what surgery looks like, and then we're going to spend the next seven weeks after that going deep into the core of who we are so that we might really find the emotional healing and health that's necessary for us to have a healthy spirituality. So we're going to look at Mark chapter 12. Um, look at Mark chapter 12. If you turn there, uh, we're going to read uh, four verses here. So 
famous passage, a famous teaching from Jesus that might be familiar with some of you if you've been in the church for some time. But we're going to try and look at this with fresh eyes and try and see what Jesus says about this huge, huge idea. Uh, Mark 12, 28 to 31, this is God's word. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one answered Jesus is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. This is God's word. The great commandment. What's the most important thing? Okay, you know this, Harvest 201, right? It's to love God with all you are and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. The essence of life is love. The essence of life is your relationships. But what is Jesus saying? I think there's three things we're going to look at really important here to set the table. Three things, okay? Three things that we see by either by direct uh, <clears throat> the words of Jesus or by indirect application. Here's the first thing. You are a spiritual being. You're a spiritual person, but you're not just a spiritual person. Okay. You're a spiritual being, but you're not just a spiritual being. Look at what Jesus says. Uh, most important thing is to love God, but he does not say, here's the most important thing, love the Lord your God with all of your soul. He doesn't say that. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. At least four parts of us. And, uh, and then before he can go on to say anything else, he says, but there's a second, just like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. There's at least five parts of you. Here he says five. In other places he says four. In other places he says other things. But here, you're an emotional being, your heart. You're a spiritual being, your soul. You're a mental being, your mind. You're a physical being, your strength. And you're a social being, your relationships. But a lot of times, we only think when it comes to what we need to do to change and to grow, we only think that we are spiritual beings. At least that's what the remedies that we're given, the remedies that we practice, make it seem like. Let me simply put it like this. Okay, let's just take the physical. You have, um, you're riding your bike. Okay, you're riding your bike, or if you've got kids, your kid is riding a bike, and they fall off their bike, and they come running inside to you. They've got a busted up knee. You're sitting on the sofa uh, reading a book or watching TV. Kid comes running in, they say, oh, mommy, daddy, or, you know, uh, brother, sister, whoever it is, I cut my knee. What do you tell them to do, or what do you do? You don't tell them, okay, um, just go pray about it for 10 minutes. You don't say that, right? Praying about it is helpful, but what do you do? You go wash that out, and then you put a Band-Aid on it, you put medicine on it. If you don't do that, then it will only fester and get worse and worse and worse if you leave it alone and tell them to just go pray. Very simple, right? Here's another. Here's another. Very simple. In the mental sense, okay, you're at school. You take a geometry test and you get a C on it because you forgot the principles of Sokotoa, right? You know what I'm talking about? But you forget those things and so you come home, you bring home your test, you got a C. Your dad or mom says, oh my gosh, you got a C. What happened? You're like, oh, I, I just, um, I, I, I forgot about Chief Sokotoa, sign opposite, all that stuff. And so he says, oh, that's, that's too bad. We want you to do better. Go pray. Does that happen? Well, maybe prayer is part of it, but what should he tell you to do? He should say, okay, go study your geometry book so that mentally you can be prepared so that you can take the test the next time. If you do not do that, if the answer to every Failure on an exam is go pray. What's going to happen? You will never learn how to study. You're going to get bad grades. You're going to get C's or A minuses or whatever it is, and it's going to impact your future. What's the point here? This is overly simplified. I understand that, but the answer is not always to read the Bible and pray because you're a spiritual being, but you're not just a spiritual being. So here you've got these challenges in your life emotionally, right? There are things that happen. Maybe you can't deal, you don't know how to deal with these things. You just have this outburst of anger or you're just dealing with this sadness that you can't shake. People tell you, hey, just snap out of it. You're like, I, I can't. My doctor says it's, it's depression or you, you've got these challenges relationally. You feel insecure in the presence of, of older people. 
You feel afraid. You feel like every time you stand in front of people, you get this massive social anxiety. And people said, okay, just go read the Bible and pray. That might be helpful, and it is helpful, but it's not the only thing that's going to help you. In fact, a lot of times the reason we're stuck spiritually is because we're stuck emotionally. For the better part of, I would say, probably six or seven years, I spent time in a counselor's office with my, one of my spiritual mentors and, and a hero who's impacted my life probably more than anybody else. The first, first uh, stretch was when I was in seminary training to be a pastor, and the professors at our school said, everyone who's going to be a minister or go into ministry ought to go into counseling, get counseling to deal with things that they don't know how to deal with, blind spots in our own lives. Three years I spent time there, and then for about four years after, three years after I, I, I hit some pretty deep trauma in, in my life, I was in the counseling office again with the same counselor he'd, he'd relocated. And when we started, when we started, nobody was doing counseling. It was seen as like, a, you, got, you got mental issues if you go to therapy. He said, I don't see it as therapy. I'm not, I don't, I, I, basically what I would call this is I would just call this Christian discipleship. To help you to be everything that you were saved to be in Jesus Christ. Things that reading the Bible and prayer alone cannot help you to uncover. And so we dealt with a lot of things, and I found so much, even within the first two months, I found so much healing and so much of a sense of, 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 of being detoxified from negative scripts that I had in my mind that I couldn't have if I was just reading the Bible and praying. They were blind spots. I didn't see them. I didn't know. And so as we began to work through them, I remember just being so, uh, finding such a sense of release and, and, and healing from them. I was sharing as uh, one time with a first-generation Korean-speaking uh, mentor of mine, and I said, you know, this has been, been so great. I'm learning a lot in seminary, learning a lot in ministry, but I'm learning so much about myself through counseling. And he kind of, again, at that time in 2000, uh, 2000 two, three, it was not, it was still very taboo to, to go see a counselor. So he said, why do you have to go see a counselor? And I said, I'm really working through issues like my relationship with my parents and how that affected me. The things that they said to me, the things that they didn't say to me, the things that they did to me, the loss that I've experienced in life, the, the, the decisions that I've made, the uh, habits that I had formed, like all of these things, the way my ethnic identity plays out in the way that I live. And how the fears and the insecurities that I had. And I was just talking about that. I was just like feeling this, this rush of, man, God was really using uh, my spiritual mentor to do a deep work of, of healing in my heart. This pastor looked at me and he said, you know what? Whatever issues you've got, I had the same thing. I've lived twice as long as you have. You talk about parent issues. My parents died in the war, Korean War. My parents, were, when they were alive, they were angry. They hurt me. They did all these things. I came to another country. I was made fun of all this stuff. And he said, you know, I don't need counseling. He said, what I do is I just wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning and I pray and I read the Bible and I'm fine. That's what he said. And my first thought was, but are you really fine? Because there's a lot of things, at least a couple things, that I would say are not really fine. But the second thought was, Maybe that helped for you, but there are things in my life that I just couldn't work through on my own through just reading the Bible and praying. That was absolutely part of it, and I'm not knocking that at all. I will be the first to tell you that the Word of God and prayer needs to be the bedrock foundations of our lives, but I am saying that that's not the only solution because we are more than spiritual beings. We're more than spiritual beings. Could it be that the reason why you have a difficult time loving God as Father when Seho says your deepest identity is as a child of God is because you project the image that you have of your earthly father onto God? That's not something you just pray and read the Bible. You have to work through. These are emotional issues that need to be unstuck for you to get spiritually unstuck. The reason why you don't want to be in a discipling relationship is because you still haven't dealt with the shame in your life and you don't want to uncover that because you're afraid, because you define your lives not by the gospel and what Christ has done, but by your shame and the mistakes that you've made. You think about your family of origin and how that impacts you and it keeps you from really seeing the church as a family. That's why you do everything on Sunday, but you won't get involved in deeper relationships with other people. Could it be that the reason for your being spiritually stuck and stagnated 
did is because you're emotionally stuck because all of your answers have focused only on spiritual solutions that deal with the 10% but don't work through the 90% below the surface. What if we began to really begin a journey to see ourselves as more than simply spiritual beings and began to explore the depth of who we are? Because the first thing that Jesus shows us is that we're not just spiritual beings. We are that, but that's not all that we are. The second thing that we see, okay, second thing that we see is that your spiritual health, right, you cannot be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. You cannot be spiritually mature while you remain emotionally immature. There is a level, there is a cap to which that will go. Look at what Jesus says. He doesn't say, okay, he doesn't say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is often how we shorthand this great commandment. Jesus says, love the Lord your God, okay, with all your heart, okay, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, he's saying, here's the great commandment. Love God with every part of who you are at full capacity. So 100% of everything that you are. But the reality is that most of us do not grow in all five of these ways at the same degree. And so you've met people like this. You look at it like a 10-year-old who's been through a lot of stuff in life and, and they've had to take care of their family members, their younger siblings. And you look at that person and you say, wow, that's like an old soul in a young person. Or that person is wise beyond their years. Why? Because physically they may be 10, but emotionally, mentally, they might be 20, 30, 40 years old. There are some people who are 50, 60, 70 years old who have the emotional age of an adolescent. You know people like that? Maybe that's your parents. Maybe it's your in-laws. <laughs> Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's you. Just because you grow old doesn't mean you grow up. And a lot of us are stifled in our growth. We're getting older, but we're not getting more mature. Because we've just taken spiritual solutions and slapped them onto emotional problems that are going deeper and deeper and getting more and more buried beneath the surface. And the roots are going deeper into our lives. And we're wondering, why am I not changing? Like, why am I not changing? Why am I still so fearful still? Why am I so insecure still? Why can't I, why can't I face the, the facts? Why do I always blame other people? Why do I always have to be right? Why do I always have to have the last word in the argument with my boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance, spouse? Why do I always have these things come up constantly? Why am I so afraid of abandonment? Because we've got these deep-rooted issues that it takes time for us to deal with. I remember one time being at a, uh, at a park in, uh, in Oviedo, and there was a bunch of people playing basketball, and a couple of these guys had, had played, uh, were playing college at University of Florida. They're from a local high school. And a as they're playing basketball, I was just kind of watching them play, and, and um, one of the guys was playing defense, and someone called a foul on him. They caught a foul, and this guy um, got really upset, and he said, no, kind of like Luke Skywalker said, no. He said, no, and then he took the ball, and he threw it down to the other side of the court, and it bounced against the fence, and he said, you go get the ball then if you think it was a foul. And I thought to myself, man, he's 20 years old, but he's acting as if he was maybe a teenager, maybe a child, maybe the way that some of our young children would act. He was physically about 20, but emotionally he was not there. You think of people like that, right, who have come to a certain point in their maturity level that you would expect. This is why uh, sometimes, here's some bonus dating relational advice for those of you sisters who are not in a relationship. Sometimes I'll say, hey, you want to you wanna know if someone is is uh, you want to get to know below the surface, beneath the surface of a, of a, of a guy that likes you or a guy that you like, uh, watch him when they play basketball or when they play sports or they play a game and they lose. Okay, watch how they react. Watch how they respond because that's an indication of their emotional maturity. Like, do they handle it with grace? Someone said, someone said they, and they said, I, they swear by this idea that he can tell how long a marriage is going to last by the wedding day. 
says when they feed each other the cake, how they do that, he says if, if one person gets it all over their face, if the other gets angry or vengeful or puts it all over their face, he says this marriage is not going to last. Because it's an indication to him of a lack of maturity at an emotional level. You cannot become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. That's just the reality of the way of life. Right? We see this constantly in so many different facets of life. Where would you be? Where are you at an emotional level then? So you think about it, if you're really to look beneath the surface, what's going on? As you, in, inside your bulletin, uh, there's a resource that allows you to do an assessment of your emotional health. I would really, I would ask you to do that, right? Not in there, you don't have to look at it now. It's just a website that you go to. Right? So you're not going to do that right now. It's like 70 questions. It's not going to, it's going to take a long time. But to, to, to really think through that and to see where am I? Because you see, you don't see this immediately. For everything else in life, the reason why sometimes we, a lot of times we ignore this is because in every other aspect of life, okay, you understand this, if you're not healthy physically, everybody will notice that. You feel that. You know that. Everybody sees that. It's visible. Okay? If you've got, if you're coughing or if you've got some kind of sickness, you're sneezing, people are like, oh, you don't look so good. If you're socially awkward, socially immature, everybody knows that. They see that. If mentally uh, you have mental lapses or handicaps, people see that. But at an emotional level, it's beneath the surface, and a lot of times we don't see that. A lot of times that's not visible unless you get up close and personal and really dig into it and really look for it and really see it. That's, uh, then and only then does that begin to come out. But it's the stuff in every area of life. It's, again, it's the, it's the roots beneath the tree that determines how strong it's going to be. Right? It's the stuff that you don't see. It's the body that you see is one thing, but it's the stuff inside, the organs, the internal organs that's going to determine its proper functioning, the stuff that lies beneath the surface, the things that we do not see. It's an iceberg. It's the same thing. It's, it's a car. You see the body of the car, and you can be impressed by it, but if the engine is failing, then that car is not worth purchasing because it's not going to get you very far. See, a lot of people have it going on okay on the outside, but on the inside there's an immaturity and there's a brokenness and there's a stuntedness because of things that we have not worked through. And you wonder why. Why am I not changing? Why am I not growing? Because while we're spiritual, that's not the only part of us. How do you know? Here's, here's the best way to tell, and here's the last thing, the third thing we're going to see. Okay? Your emotional health, okay, your emotional health will be seen in the health of your relationships. Jesus says, you get this first thing right, love God with everything within you. And then he says in verse 31, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. If you've got the love your God part right, then out of the overflow of that place, you're going to begin to love the people around you. Okay? You're going to love them because the way that you see your emotional, spiritual wellness, it's seen in your relationships. Love your neighbor as yourself. Not the neighbors that we choose, but the neighbors that we have. The neighbors in your house church, the ones that you want to avoid, the ones that you don't want to invite to your birthday party, but you know that you should. How do you deal, how do you deal with that? What do you do with that? The neighbors that you have, the people that you work with, your classmates, your parents, the people that you live with, the people that you can't escape. Love them as much as you love yourself. Oh, of course I love my kids, but is that what is demonstrated when push comes to shove? So I was introduced to this idea of emotionally healthy spirituality when I was in a mentoring group with uh, 10 of my, now 10 of my closest friends. We're all Asian American pastors. We're all uh, involved in, in ministry. We've been doing it for, for, for quite some time. But one of the questions, uh, as we were preparing for this, as we study, and, and we, we would meet every six months over a period of many years, and the things that we would talk about was brokenness, brokenness in our hearts, in our, in our churches, and in our world. And the initial question that was asked of us, we had a series of questions that we asked, had to write papers on. Talk about how you deal with conflict. Talk about a broken relationship and how you work through that. Talk about someone who hurt you. Talk about someone who hurt you. And all of these things were symptomatic, right, outplaying of an emotional 
brokenness. I know not everyone in here is, is Asian, but can I, can I kind of uh, press this a little bit for those of us who are and to help us to understand because each of our culture brings something to it. Asians typically are not very good at dealing with our emotions. Right? Typically, the stereotype, and again, stereotypes are there because it's typical, it's not everybody, okay? But, but hear me out. I know for Chinese Americans, Korean Americans, Chinese Koreans, uh, expressing verbally our emotions is not something that we're very good at doing. How many times have you heard your Asian parents tell you that they loved you? Do you know that they, do they, do you, do they love, well, of course, how do you know? Because they ask me, did I eat my food, right? What am I eating? They make me food. They do my laundry. They fold, uh, they iron my clothes. That's how we know that they love us. But it's rare that you actually hear that, right? It's rare that we hear that and we work through a lot of baggage when it comes to our emotions as Asian American people. I, not just Asian American, but for all of us. But let me just illustrate this. Uh, Olivia, my wife, went to a high school called Woodson High School in uh, Northern Virginia. Woodson High School is about 50% Korean American, right, which is crazy. They have a, uh, well, they had, when I, was, when I was in high school, different high school, at that high school, they had, uh, were the state champions in wrestling. They had constant, like in, in, in almost every weight class, uh, they had people who placed in the top five in state. But the wrestling coach said, and one of my friends who wrestled said this, he said, I love those Korean wrestlers. Okay, that's what he said on my team because this is what he said. He said, they have that kimchi temper in them. What does that even mean? I don't know, but the Koreans on his, on his wrestling team had this, like, fire in them. There's a book that came out recently called Korean Cool or something like that, written by a, a lady named Yuni Hong, and she also writes in that um, a section about uh, this Korean concept called Han. It's something that's in the DNA of every Korean American, every Korean, ethnically Korean person. It's in me, and it's in, in, in others, and if you watch K-pop too long, you'll get it also, but... It's basically this idea of this anger that we Korean people have. Uh, maybe some of you are like, no, not me. But maybe it's latent and dormant and below the surface. But the way that she describes and the way that other sociologists describe it, it's this anger that leads to, a, it's a mental illness now called hua byung, which means anger illness. It's actually in the DSM, the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Illnesses. And it's an ethnic-specific disease, it says. See, Han is this idea that comes from 5,000 years of pent-up rage. Because as a hermit kingdom, just beautiful, lush lands have been attacked and colonized and oppressed and overtaken. We are two generations removed from an awful civil war that divided the families of our parents. And nobody talks about it. They don't talk about it like the Holocaust. No one deals with it. We just smash it down and we say, we're survivors. We come to America. We survive. That's what we do. That's the way we talk about it. But inwardly, there's this rage that comes. That's why your five-foot, one-inch dad is the fear of everybody in your neighborhood, right? <laughs> because he got these, like, Popeye forearms. Even though you're a foot taller than him, he scares the living daylights out of you. Why? Because he can break you with his fingers. Because he's got this Han, this rage within him. And if you're not laughing, it's because you've experienced that. If you're laughing, it's because you've experienced it too. But you know what I'm talking about, right? He's got this like, ain't nobody mess with him. Right? You don't want to bring home your A- minus report card to dad because he's going to snap you in half. Right? That's this, this, this rage within us. Maybe it helps you to understand if you're married to a Korean person and you're not Korean, you're like, oh, that makes sense to me. It always just, it always seemed angry, but now, now it all's starting to come together. It's why in James Bond movie Goldfinger, you remember, I don't know if you remember Goldfinger, but Goldfinger has this bodyguard named Oddjob, right? And Goldfinger says, I only hire Korean bodyguards because they are the most vicious people. You know, the, the U.S. De Department of Defense, Okay, you laugh, but this is, this is in your DNA, okay? Understand this. Okay, U.S. Department of Defense. This part wasn't supposed to be funny, but I, that's fine. Emotionally, I don't know what's going on with you, but the U.S. Department of Defense, after the Vietnam War, they wrote a report, and they said the one people the Vietnamese feared the most 
were the Koreans. I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> Do you remember a couple years back, Korean Air has a CEO and he has a daughter. He's riding first class in it. She's riding first class, and she got really angry, and she assaulted the flight attendant, made the plane go back to the gate. Do you remember this? Why? Do you remember why? Her macadamia nuts were served in a bag instead of a bowl. That's crazy. Something wrong with you, right? Why do you do that? Go pray in a corner. No, 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 no. There's something going on beneath the surface. We have an unhealthy understanding of our emotions as Korean Americans, maybe as Asian Americans, but, but all of us, right? All of us have to work through a bunch of things as it relates to, it's not just anger. Like when I was a kid, I would cry a lot, right? Maybe why my kids cry a lot, but I, I cried a lot when I was little. And you know what my parents would say? Uh, they knew when I was crying just to get attention. I didn't do that a lot. I was, I was, I was in touch emotionally, but I would cry when I was sad. I'd cry when I was sad, and you know what my parents would say to me? It didn't matter if I was at home and nobody was there, or if I was at church or at my friend's house, my parents' friend's house, I was at Kmart, it didn't matter where I was. I would just start crying. When I would start crying, they would say this Korean word, they would say, duk. It means stop. I, I've never heard it in any other context. If I'm driving, I'm about to go through red light, they never said duk. It, I think it means stop crying. But that's what I interpreted to mean. Every time I would cry, they would say that and that I would stop. I would have to stop because I was taught that I couldn't be sad. I definitely couldn't be angry because that's a really bad thing. But, you, you know, in all of that emotional mess that our parents have been passed down generation to generation to generation to generation, again, two generations removed from a vicious and awful war that they didn't go to counseling for. They didn't deal with that stuff. You, t you look at your parents' marriage, you got anger management issues. Y'all should see counseling. They're like, we don't need to see counseling. We're just going to go to morning prayer. That's what we do with it, right? And so we deal with these things in that way. And so we grow up thinking, wow, We've got a really weird song and dance that we do with our emotions. For me, I grew up for much of my life thinking I can't get angry and I can't get sad. I can't laugh too much. So my emotions get stunted and I realized that was putting a cap on my spiritual growth. And then I begin to see that relationally Jesus did get angry. He got very angry at times. Angry enough that he would flip over a bunch of tables. That Jesus would cry. When his friend died and he saw the effect that it had on other people, he, he knew that he was going there in order to raise the dude from the dead, but he still cried. Do you understand this? He knew how the story would end, but it didn't stop him from crying during the sad parts in the middle of the story. Jesus, who was the perfect man, who, the most perfect person who ever lived, was deeply and fully in touch with his emotions, and he expressed them in a way that was healthy. And I began to realize maybe there's something off with the way that I process my emotions, and maybe this is keeping me from really living the life that I was saved to live. And the first place that that would show up is in my relationships with my brother. As close as we are, as much as we love each other, it's very hard for us to talk about deep spiritual things. With my parents, as much as I know that they love me, it's hard for me to express that to them. It's, it, it plays out in all of these different kinds of relationships. How do you know how emotionally healthy you are? It's going to be seen in the health of your relationships, not the ones that you choose, because I can be great with Olive, I can kiss her, and I can tell her I love her, and all these things, I can do that with Elise, and do that with, I can, I can hug you at the door, but it's not about the people that I choose to be my neighbor, it's the people that God's already put in my life. How do I relate to people like them? Because my emotional health is going to be seen in the health of my relationships, every one of them. That's why Jesus said, here's your new ethic. Here's the way it's going to look. Here's the way it's going to look. People hate you, pray for them. People make fun of you, persecute you, you love them. That's the way it looks. That's how you know that you've got it in your heart. Soul, mind, heart, strength, your relationships. It's shown in those places. So how are you doing as it relates to your emotional health? How is the health quotient in your relationships? Not the people that, not your fave five. Because oftentimes it shows up with those who are closest to us. You may have heard of World Vision, 
the relief organization, but you may not have heard of Bob Pierce, their founder. World Vision is um, on 103 different countries right now, helping children. Uh, 50 million kids have been rescued and helped and, and, and saved out of abject poverty and, or, and, and, and um, being abandoned, things like that. But he started this 1950s after the Korean War. While the war was going on, he saw an orphan kid, and he, he, he brought the kid in. And he did that. He didn't just see one, but he saw a bunch of them. So he just started bringing them in. And he started this organization that helps people in need and poverty in this way. So he started this organization called World Vision, and, and people would, man, his, his friends were like, dude, he's a man on a, on a mission. He's got a vision, and he will stop at nothing to get it done. They called him a real-life Christian Samaritan, right? Newspapers, magazines were written about him. They said he's a star that, that, that's just streaking through the sky, just blazing, blazing throughout the world in order to bring the hope of Christ to countless people who need it the most. His mission in life was, God, break my heart for what breaks yours. And then he said, God, let me, in this single flame that I have, let me burn out for you. That's what he said. So he would work 18-hour days. He would go from country to country to establish world vision bases and constantly jet-lagged, emotional tank depleted. And so while he was changing the world out there, it was affecting the people closest to him in ways that he had no idea. And so one day he was traveling with his wife, doing relief work, and he got a phone call from America. It was his daughter. And she said, Dad, can you please come home? I really need you. So his wife said, Bob, I really think you should go home. Let's go home. And he said, I can't. I got to go to Vietnam. I got to go to Vietnam. They need me out there. Why don't you just go and, and take care of things? And so mom left, wife left, and went into her shock when she got home. She saw her daughter recovering after an attempted suicide in the hospital. And she said, I just needed to feel dad's arms around me. But I knew he wouldn't come home. Because he was doing the work of God, spiritual things, important things, things that were changing the world while he was losing the world at home. And two years later, his daughter did take her life. His marriage fell apart. He would go years, Pete Scazzaro says, without talking to his wife. Estranged from all of his family members, on his deathbed, he made reconciliation with them. But for those many, many years, the people close to him suffered in silence as well as verbally and vocally. The board of directors that he had created for World Vision forced his resignation because they couldn't deal with his emotional outbursts and anger, and it got worse and worse and worse because while the 10% was flourishing and thriving, the 90% was rotting worse and worse and worse, and the corruption blew up all over the people who needed him the most. Because you see, when your spiritual life is up here, your physical life is up here, but the other parts of you, your emotional life are down here, relationally is down here. This, when, when these are together, it's called integration, an integrated life, integrity. But when there's a disconnect, there is a lack of integration, a disintegration of your life. And what ends up happening whenever there's disintegration of a foundation is that eventually there will be a crash. And who's going to feel it the most? It's the ones that you least want to feel it. But what if, what if things were different? What if instead of living an emotionally unhealthy spirituality, we decided that we wanted far better, that we were meant for more, that we were made for more? What if we began to dream of what it looked like if no longer living in fear, no longer needing to project an image, no longer being afraid of my shame, no longer being saddled by guilt, no longer feeling insecure when I talk to people that I think are, are, have more money than me or are, are, are more socioeconomically or more, uh, more popular than me. What if we no longer had to, what if our lives, we didn't need to show how strong we are, but there was a tenderness in our strength and there was a strength in our 
tenderness? What if we began to overcome these emotional baggage and we really began to live and the people closest to us really began to feel the love of God in and through us? If we began to feel again what it was like to sing with all of our hearts and God meeting with us and touching us and healing us and filling us, what if every time we read the word of God it began to speak and sink into not a hardened soil that has been hardened because of the difficulties of life and the brokenness and the baggage, but began to sink into good soil and really began to take root? What if we began to cry again and laugh again and feel again and be moved again? What if things were, what if we didn't settle for an emotionally unhealthy spirituality? What would our lives look like? And how could the relationships closest to us be changed for the better? When I think about that, I think about that, I think about, man, what was the life of Jesus like? That was a life of complete integration of an emotionally healthy spirituality. And he invites you into this now. I want to I invite you to think about something here. What if this week, what if this week, I want you to just track with me because I know that this is, this is sounding like it's, it's difficult and it might be painful and it might be a hard journey, but I want you to imagine that you're laying on a bed this week in your room and someone comes into your room wearing a mask, wielding a knife, and while you're sleeping, they cut you open. And after that's done, they demand your money, they take it, and they leave. Would you sign up for that kind of an experience this week? What if, what if that person who came into your room was coming into your hospital room where you're lying on a bed and the person who comes in is not a robber, but he's wearing a mask, a surgeon's mask, and he comes with a surgeon's scalpel and he cuts you open not to hurt you, but to bring healing to you. And instead of taking your money, he says, you know what? And he takes off his mask and it's the great physician, it's Jesus. He says, you don't need to pay me anything. I've already paid it. Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, it says, by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus Christ holds out to you two pathways. He says, you can do it the way that you're doing it right now. You can continue to live. And until the day you die and meet your maker, you can live in this emotionally broken spirituality, only seeing parts of what it means to live. Sing in black and white with a little bit of color splashed in, or you could come to me and you could experience life the way that it was meant to live. You don't need to live your remaining days on earth this way. You could find life. You could live in color. You could dream again. You could hope again. You could live, and maybe you can live for the first time because the promise of that healing is available to you if you would come to the great physician. The intent of everything that God does for you is for your good, for your healing, to love you, and to show you his utter and absolute perfect goodness. And he says, I hold out before you this kind of life, an emotionally healthy spirituality that doesn't leave you wondering, why am I not changing, but sees transformation from the inside out. This is our hope. This is our inheritance in Jesus. He says, do you want this? Because if you do, it's here. We're going to walk in that journey together, and God willing, by his grace, will receive that transformed life. Let's pray together. Uh, let's pray. Let's take a moment to respond to God's word. How do you see emotional unhealth in your life? Is it in your outbursts of anger? Is it in the avoidance of difficult things? Is it in the avoidance of conflict? Is it in the desire to make yourself look better because you don't feel comfortable in your own skin? Is it your willingness to, unwillingness to go out into different quarters that make you uncomfortable because you feel insecure about who you are? Where does that unhealth show up in your life? Play out your relationships. Where does that show up? God is holding out the hope for so much more. Can we take a moment, maybe just 30 seconds to a minute right now, to say, Lord, I want to step into this place towards emotional healing so that my spiritual life can be 
and reach the maturity that it was intended to reach. God, help me to live out an emotionally healed, healthy spirituality. Let's pray for that for half a minute to a minute right now. Just praying, asking the Lord for the strength, the courage, the bravery, the boldness to be able to enter into these places so that we could allow the great physician to do his healing work, his emotional, spiritual surgery within us. Let's pray for a couple moments like that. I'll pray for us after, and then we'll continue to respond to his word, asking him to change us from the inside out. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, realizing that we need your grace more than we know. We need your emotional healing. We need you to give us the courage to look into places in our lives, into areas of our past, into family dynamics into generational sins, to be able to face these things. Because we don't want to pass these things on to the generations to come either. But that we would live out not an Asian spirit, not an Asian view of emotion, not a Western view of emotion, but a biblical view of our emotions. Really surrender that to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So that in being healed and healthy in that area, that we might grow to become healthy spiritually. Father, we pray that you would help us to want this, to desire this, to be willing to face and confront the demons of our past, the demons of our present, to say, Lord, I want to grow. I want to live my life in such a way that I would not only be free, but help lead others to freedom in Christ as well. Father, give us the faith, the courage, the boldness, the strength, and the community by which we can do this. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first in our desires, that we love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. So towards that end, would you help us? Thank you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.